surprise guest. Any baseball fans in the audience will be very, very excited. I know. No, we could give a sneak peek. We can give some clues. He was a former owner, Jew. Don't make it too obvious. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll give it a surprise. Let's just say baseball fans, anybody who's been a baseball fan in the last 10 to 15 years will be very excited about this guest. Yeah. But today we have a different guest. We have Mr. Daniel Burke. Well, first of all, before we get to today's guest, Isaac, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be Season back. Tres. Season tres. Season three. How does it feel? How are you feeling? Feeling good, man. I say it every time. A well-oiled machine. And every day mm. we one day closer. So it's good to be back. Thank God. BH, BH. Yeah, it's very exciting. Obviously, this is the second episode of the season, but we didn't get a chance to do one of these. We haven't had, you know, like a one-on-one segment released in a while. So, hey, this is how the podcast started. And then we went to the interviews and then it was like from time to time. But like now we can do this where we try to a little one-on-one intros. So here we are. And since we last saw you, barring the previous episode with Rabbi Rubin, which we hope you enjoyed. Yeah, so since we last spoke, we have launched properly Jewish Original Media, which has been mentioned a lot on this podcast. It's our umbrella brand where we're going to plan to grow. We brought on some team members that are helping on this very podcast, that are helping with research. Isaac, you want to tell them about the World Jewish Congress? Yeah, we're part of an incubator program partnership with the World Jewish Congress and Next Gen Inc. And through them, we, as Mayor said, we're able to grow and expand. We're also able to use a whole host of resources that they're able to provide, both research resources, financial resources. And we're in the beginning phase of what we hope will continue to be a beautiful partnership. And we're currently creating some awesome things that we can't wait to highlight for you as we continue through uh, season three and the spring leads into summer. Yes. One of those things is for anybody, probably most of you follow our On This Dangerous History page. We're essentially creating a resource with them that's going to exist outside of social media. Yeah. That basically puts together all those dates in a way that's really user-friendly. We're going to integrate a map. We're going to integrate a search. We're really, really excited to share that project as it's currently in development. Podcast, we have some big ideas content-wise. Things are really picking up now, thank God. So without further ado, Daniel Burke. Daniel Burke is today's guest. Daniel Burke, he's part of the Speakers Bureau of the World Jewish Congress, which is interesting. One of the things that we can do with them is that they can connect us with some pretty high profile people. But Daniel actually reached out to us. Daniel Burke is a lawyer specializing in criminal and regulatory law. He's appeared on radio. He's from the UK. He's the director of the UK Lawyers for Israel. He was awarded with the Herzl Award by the World Zionist Congress. But the real reason why he wanted to come on the show was to talk about his book that just came out last year, Captured Behind Japanese Lines. Yeah, his grandfather is a part of the story. And one of the awesome things, when you listen to the episode, Burke dives into this rather deeply. The book shines a light on Jews fighting in the Pacific. And Mm -hmm. we pay so much attention to the war in Europe for good reason. But definitely speaking with Mr. Burke highlighted all the insane stuff that happened in Asia during World War II. So that was super cool. Yes. We'll leave the rest of his story for the interview. You can check it out coming up right now. And you can find him on Twitter at Daniel Burke One. You can find his book. It seems that he's selling it on penandsword.co.uk. Again, captured behind Japanese lines with Wingate's Chinditz, Burma, 1942 to 1945. And yeah, I mean, it's definitely on my list. It's been on my list since we interviewed him. So uh, anything else? Any last words? Enjoy the podcast. And thanks for sticking with us for season three. We got a lot of cool things in store for you. Yes. And with that, take it away. Before we get to the interview, we wanted to share some news. One of our favorite podcasts is back. Unpacking Israeli history with Dr. Noam Weissman. Fun fact. 
Dr. Noam Weissman was the very first guest on the Two Tall Jews show. When many of us hear Israel, we instinctively flinch. In conservative and liberal circles alike, suddenly, it's political. It's a screaming match. Everyone throws around loaded terms like apartheid, occupation, terrorism. So either we have these massive fights, or we just shut down and avoid these conversations entirely. But what if there was a better way, where one could think and discuss Israel respectfully and with depth and nuance? In unpacking Israeli history, Dr. Noam Weissman, history buff and passionate storyteller, is diving into that complication. You can go back and binge all the first two seasons, and great news! Like we said, season three has just started. So join Noam as he explores stories like the deadly Mossad operations, the Jew who colluded with the Nazis, and a bloody massacre in Hebron 20 years before the founding of Israel. In each episode, Noam takes you into the guts of the story, what happened, why it happened, why it matters, and how each of these stories is still impacting the news today. And the next time someone brings up Israel, maybe you won't duck and cover as arguments start flying around you. You can find Unpacking Israel History wherever you listen to podcasts. And now, here's the interview with Daniel Burke. Today, there are organizations which help soldiers of more recent conflicts um, to deal with mental and, and physical injuries. Actually, all of the royalties from this book are being donated to a charity called Veterans in Action, which is a wonderful charity which helps soldiers with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or combat stress. And what they do is wonderful. They build Land Rovers together and then they go on missions together and they do good things. And because they're together with other people who understand and with some professionals as well, it truly makes a difference and it wow. saves lives. Welcome to the Two Tall Jews Show, presented by the On This Dangerous History Instagram account and brought to you by Best Shop Productions. For all your video marketing solutions, go to bestshopproductions.com and get a quote on your next video project today. We're a set of Jews, we happen to be tall, and we are ready to go. On today's episode, we have Daniel Burke. Daniel Burke is a solicitor specializing in criminal and regulatory law and has a master's degree in criminal justice. He acted in numerous high-profile and complex legal matters throughout the jurisdiction and has been interviewed in major news and current affairs broadcasts about his work and cases. He holds a board position in a nonprofit legal organization and is a member of the Jewish Diplomatic Corps for the World Jewish Congress. He's also the author of Captured Behind Japanese Lines with Wingate's Shinditz, Burma, 1942-1945, his first book, which was inspired by the incredible heroism of his grandfather, Frank Berkovich, who fought alongside during World War II. Captured behind Japanese lines chronicles his grandfather's journey as a soldier as well as his time spent as a prisoner of war after being caught by the Japanese. The work is the product of a considerable personal research, research that took him to Burma to bear witness to his grandfather's experiences. And we're fortunate to have him on our podcast so that Frank's story and the story similar to it will never be forgotten. Daniel Burke, welcome to the show. Happy to have you on. Before we get into your book and some of the legal work you do, can you talk a little bit about your background, how you grew up, the Judaism you grew up with, I grew up in a Jewish community in Manchester, which is the best Jewish community outside of Israel. In a very traditional Jewish family, we belong to an Orthodox shul. My parents are staunch believers in Israel as the land for Jews. During the October War, my father was a young man packed his bags and went to Israel to help on the first plane he could get. My wife is from Finland. She did something similar and uh, volunteered in the IDF. She became an Air Force sergeant and was decorated. We still live in Manchester now. I'm director of UK Lawyers for Israel. As you mentioned, I'm a diplomat for the World Jewish Congress. I hope my children will follow in our 
footsteps and have that close connection to our faith and to Israel. Yeah, I practice as a lawyer and try to use some of those skills to the good of Judaism and for Israel and to challenge unfair bias against Israel. And the book I wrote was something that came along perhaps almost by accident. What's the relationship for you between your upbringing and learning about World War II? Did you receive like a personal education in addition to what you received in schools? Did you seek it out on your own? How did that come about? Most of the education we had in school and outside of school, you know, Jewish youth groups was always focused on Europe. I had a knowledge that my grandfather had fought against the Japanese and I knew he'd been a prisoner of the Japanese, but he didn't talk about it. If you try to engage him in conversation, it was like a guillotine came down and it shut you off. So most of our education was war in Europe, the main war, I suppose, and of course the terrible crimes committed against Jews and others during the Shoah. So the war in the Far East was something I knew my grandfather had been involved in it, but we knew very little about it, and it didn't feature too much in my education. How do you compare the challenge between writing the book that you did and sort of being a lawyer? Did the skills sort of intersect? Were you able to use like your lawyer hat when tackling these aspects of history? Yes, it helped with the research, actually, because I do a lot of writing in my job. You went to Burma. Can you talk about your experience going to Burma? Was it you were sort of just going specifically for the book? No, I actually wasn't going for the book at the time, but I was going to learn what I could about my grandfather. It came about probably by accident. I was at my parents' house and my eye was drawn to an old book. It's called Return via Rangoon uh, by someone called Philip Stibb, who was a young officer in the Chinook campaign. And I opened it and inside was a note saying Frank's name page. And I opened it and it was a brief reference to my grandfather doing some work as a tailor in Rangoon jail in Burma, where he was a prisoner of war. I was going to Vietnam the next day and I thought, well, I'll read this. So I started it at the start of the flight and finished it 17 hours later. And it was my first introduction to the Chinbits, who were a very elite commando force who had been put together by the legendary Ord Wingate. They would, of course, had a lot of experience with the special night squads in Free State Palestine and had trained the likes of Moshe Dayan, Yigal Alon, Yigal Yadin, and was considered the sort of grandfather of the IDF. So he had developed this very elite band of men to fight against the Japanese in the jungles of Burma. And I thought, this is fascinating. I came back from Vietnam and I mentioned it to my parents. And my mum said, oh, I think we've got a note he wrote once for a student or something. And she dug out a document which my grandfather had written. He's been dead for a number of years. And it was 13 handwritten pages of his experiences. And it was mind-blowing. We were talking about blowing up bridges and attacking Japanese garrisons and talking about their time as prisoners of war, um, things they had to do to try and save each other. And I used this memo as a basis to research. Um, you know, I was on Google Earth looking for villages, but in, in Burma, some of the villages are so tiny or they don't exist anymore and they've moved uh, so it was quite a, a lot of research and I was able to uncover other memoirs at the Imperial War Museum I read some books and then I thought I'll go to Burma to see what it's like and actually my plan at the time was to take photographs I love photography and to create a small book for my children and my nephews and nieces with his memoir in it and some pictures and some explanation but I found and this is a problem with being a lawyer that as I started um, 
explaining one bit, I decided more details were needed, more explanations were needed. And before I knew it, I think I was on chapter four. So it came about by accident. But Burma, uh, taking a long run up to the wicket, was uh, Myanmar, of course, now. One of the most fascinating places I've been to. Parts of it haven't changed, you know, since the war. There are villages sort of on bamboo stilts and it's subsistence farming, which provides to the villagers. Many, many tribes there. There's the Shan, the Kachin, the Karens. Chin and the Karens were very loyal to Britain and sadly perhaps betrayed by us after the war when we left them to their fate. There are the Naga, who are headhunters. They're very charming. And it's really a fascinating country. It's a very Buddhist country, although the, the Karen and the Kachin are Christians, uh, minorities. Um, and, you know, in the mornings you'll see uh, sort of novice monks going off to collect arms, walking through the villages, monks chanting. Really is a fascinating place. When I went there, it was briefly a fragile democracy. Aung San Suu Kyi had just started a power sharing arrangement with the military and there was a real sense of hope everywhere. Um, I shouldn't put aside, but obviously problems with the Rohingya areas. And sadly, a few months ago, it was no longer a democracy and the military had taken over. But I, I got in during that window. I was able to go to some of the places where my grandfather marched through or fought. I was told in two villages that I was the first Westerner to go there since the war. And one of those villages was the village where he was liberated following a death march out of Rangoon jail, where anyone who didn't keep up was murdered. I wasn't able to go to everywhere I wanted to go. And one of the villages was a place called Twingay, where 78 years ago, my grandfather crawled in there with some men that he was trying to escape out of Burma to India with, starving, dehydrated, been chased every step by Japanese, and they were ambushed. And from there, he went into two years of captivity. I wasn't quite able to get into that village because it was one of the ones that was under the control of the military and was off limits. I ended up in a bit of an argument with a local security person. And I thought, well, I can't really go and get myself arrested in the same place my grandfather was. Um, Yeah, but really a, a fascinating place. So I want to backtrack a little in case maybe some of our listeners who maybe won't get a chance to read the book or are not so familiar with the history from a timeline perspective. Can you just quickly share with us what that timeline was? Yeah, Japan entered the war with its attack on Pearl Harbor and very quickly swept through East Asia. The British defense of Singapore fell after just seven days. Malaya was taken quickly, Guinea, and uh, the Japanese also swept the British pretty quickly out of Burma. Burma, the geography is, I suppose, quite important. It has China at the top. It's the gateway to India, and India was so strategically and economically important to Britain. It's a very, very green land. It's covered in jungle, thick, thick jungle. I've been into it. It's uh, it's humid. The canopy's thick. It's dark. It's alive. For every creepy crawler you can imagine, tigers, snakes. Parts of it are very, very mountainous. Um, there was a myth after the Japanese had swept the British out so quickly that they were just unbeatable in the jungle. But Britain needed to take back Burma. That was, it was so strategically important. But there weren't really the forces to commit to it. And the commander of the Indian theatre uh, was a, a very brave soldier called Archibald Wavell, who had lost an eye at Ypres in World War One, and won the military cross. And he turned toward Wingate because he needed an unconventional soldier. Now, Wingate was a deeply religious Christian. He was unpopular in the British Army. He wasn't into drill or shiny boots or anything like that. He wasn't one of the sort of upper-class officers. He, He just didn't fit in. But he was tough and he had vision. And he had proven in Sudan, Free State Palestine, and subsequently Abyssinia, now Ethiopia, that if you take a group of ordinary men and get them to follow you, and teach them to believe in their mission, 
that they can be trained to a very high standard. And he would use those groups of men as fast-moving guerrilla forces who would be able to wreak havoc, collect intelligence, and um, really take the fight to the enemy. And he thought, well, we can do this in Burma. We don't have enough men to reconquer Burma. But what we can do is gain intelligence, cause trouble, tie up the Japanese, and we can do that with a small number of men. He wanted a small number because he wanted really the best to get. Uh, however, the regiment he was given to train hadn't actually had any combat experience. They were working as sort of military policemen in India at the time. So he set up a very tough selection test. And the selection test took him through parts of the middle of India, uh, Madhya and Uttar Pradesh. And again, I've been over there and he took them into the jungles. He took them up mountains on marches. And the men had to carry out the selection, carrying increasingly heavy packs up to 70 pounds, 35 kilos, 40 kilos, covering huge distances, over 100 miles sometimes, over multi-days, over mountains, sleeping out in the cold, learning to survive in the jungle, learning to navigate, to be able to read the stars. Each day would start with a period of unarmed combat training, bayonet practice, they would practice river crossings. And the river crossings, because there's three major rivers in Burma, the Chindwin, which separates it from India, the Irrawaddy, which is a very mighty river that dissects the country, and, and the Shweli, which cuts off the path from the north to China. So they would need to cross those rivers, and they're fast-moving rivers. So they practiced at two rivers in uh, India, and the Betwan Sonar rivers. And they did this during the monsoon seasons. Now, when I went there, the rivers were still... There were families swimming there, but during the monsoon, they are raging and they're deadly. Um, a Jewish lieutenant was killed by a negligent discharge from a rifle. Uh, another got blown up using gelignite. It was really very, very tough training. Wow. The officers mm. were required to train with the men, and it was rather different to full metal jacket, if you've seen that. There was no sergeant screaming and shouting at them. It was as simple as this. If you want to get into this unit, keep up. And if you don't, no problem, turn around, get your stuff and go back. And he didn't want anyone that didn't want to be in it. This so, is Wingate. This is Wingate, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he would do everything the men did and more. He knew how to sort of lead from the front. And they would do live fire exercises. And at the end of it, thousands had dropped out, but somehow my grandfather and 3,000 others made the grade. And actually, the, the person I knew was a very quiet, very nervous man who'd go to synagogue every day. There's certain things I can see him doing. I can see him looking after sick people in the prisoner of war camp. I cannot see him rolling around the floor in unarmed combat practice. I just can't. But they made it, and those 3,000 men were all given the opportunity to pull out. They were told that once they crossed the Chindwin, there was no way of getting out other than on their own feet. And if anybody was wounded, they would have to be left behind. And actually the officers were trained to give lethal doses of morphine to wounded men. And in the foreword to the book, Colonel Richard Kemp, who is, in my opinion, the best military friend Jews have had since Wingate, cites a poem by Kipling, where he talks about a wounded soldier on the plains of Afghanistan, who rather than be captured and face torture, should roll to your rifle and blow out your brains and go to your god like a soldier. And at least one chindit did precisely that. So if they were injured, at best, they could be left with a village and hope they'd be treated well. That was a bit of a lottery. Some would, some wouldn't. Some would sell them to the Japanese. But it, it was a sort of march or die. It was heavy. Wow. So then that's the scenario that your grandfather found himself in. That's incredible. The parallel you make of like seeing him later in life, call man in shul uh, in synagogue, and to think that that was what he went through, it's probably a lot. How emotional did it get writing about your grandfather? Obviously, it's a book about history, but there's a strong element of this being also a personal book. To a point, I don't think 
it's a history book. I think it's set at a time in history, but actually it's about human spirit and resilience and perhaps faith. There were times it was quite amusing. I went to uh, India with my father to look at some of the places that he trained and um, it became a trip where parts of it were just hilarious and I got into the jungle and uh, a local guy had told me there were some cave paintings down there. My father's was about 70 at the time. He couldn't have looked more English if he tried and he had a white Panama hat on, light coloured suit and I wanted to climb down these rocks to look at some cave paintings but he couldn't do that so our guide said he'd take him to a roadside cafe. It's like a pile of bricks with a tin roof and no road nearby. Uh, so he went off there. I came back, and as I approached this hut, um, I could see my father sat on the floor around a fire pit with uh, some local Indians. And as I got closer, there was a smell, which I recognised from university, candidly. And uh, um, I came in, I found my father with these three Indian guys passing around the biggest joint. <laughs> you know. I said, what the hell do you think you're doing? He said, I didn't want to be rude. I said, out. He said, I'm hungry. I said, yes, I bet you are. Um, there were parts that were funny, but there were parts of the research that, that were actually painful. My grandfather was a tailor. There was something that he had to do in the camps. I'm not going to ruin it. It's in, it's in the book. There was a task that he took upon himself in the prisoner of war camps, which required his tailoring skills. And it left me with my head in my hands. And all I did was read about it. He had to live it. When I read the war crimes records, there was a Japanese medical officer. It hurts to even put the word medical in the same title as this idiot. And he was a, a cruel man that had been involved in experiments and all sorts. And he had decided to try and amputate a wounded prisoner's arm and gave up halfway through the operation saying I didn't realise it was this difficult. So it shows the utter stupidity of this guy and, and the callousness of him. Fortunately, there were two British uh, doctors in the camp who were true heroes. We think about heroism in battle, perhaps, but in these unbelievably cruel, deprived circumstances, with no medical materials or anything like that, these two managed to perform a successful operation and, and the prisoner actually survived the war. So there were parts very difficult to read and to learn about. As I say, all I was doing was writing about them. I wasn't actually living through them. One thing actually was, was quite strange. We did a book launch in Manchester recently. My father's cousin came up to me, uh, also in his 70s, and he said, I remember when I was a boy in the uh, 50s, I was at your grandfather's house. And he said we were just sitting around chatting, and all of a sudden he was holding his head and shaking and screaming to his wife, Millie, my grandmother, and the tap had been dripping. And there were examples that I've read about where there had been simulated drowning, waterboarding, if you like, or, or water torture of some sorts. So, yeah, there have been things I've come across that were just either cruelty from the Japanese, cruel fate, sacrifices by people that, that were really tough to read and tough to research. So as students, Mayor myself, of the Holocaust and World War II, Jewish experiences, whether they be prisoners, soldiers or resistance fighters, are almost always centered in Europe. Does the lack of attention focused on the war in the Pacific, specifically, I guess, on Jews in Asia for the purpose of this conversation, did that help motivate the project in any way? The focus on Europe is right. That really was the main thrust of World War II. It was the first concerted industrial attempt to wipe out an entire people. And I think the work that you two, amongst others, do to keep those memories alive is so important. But the war in the Far East was a cruel war. It was a very nasty war, and it was a major part of World War II. There hasn't been enough focus on it. I don't think it needs to be one at the expense of the other. I think we should have more focus on both. But the 14th Army, who took back Burma, and this Chindit expedition was simply the first raid 
into Burma after it had fallen. There were also some special operations executive spies, essentially, who were already there trying to foment rebellion amongst uh, local tribes. But following the first Chindit operation, there was a much larger, equally tough second one of about 20,000 men who flew in on gliders and fought from fortified jungle bases. And then there were much larger British forces. Because the 3,000 men that went in on the Chindit expedition, they're not able to hold territory. There's not enough of them. But they were there as a kind of intelligence gathering spearhead. And it was vitally important to what was going on. I do think there needs to be more, more research about it. One of the driving forces in writing this book was not just about my grandfather. I, I did want to tell his story, of course, but the contribution of these remarkable men. And also, I did want to tell people that there were quite a few Jewish guys in the Chindit operations. And I think the contribution of Jews in the special forces is important. Absolutely. What was your grandfather's relationship with his own faith? Strong. Strong. It, and, was, it was strong. And did and, that precede the war? Yes. It actually been to Gateshead Yeshiva, which is a very prestigious yeshiva in the UK, uh, rabbinical school in the UK. I don't think that was the path he was going to take. His parents had come from Romania to escape anti-Jewish decrees and anti-Semitic attacks. Uh, his father, after World War I, was confined to a mental asylum, had a complete breakdown, and remained there for the rest of his days. Uh, we can only you know, imagine why. One of his brothers had become involved in petty crime and ended up being murdered by a gang. And his mother had kinds of numbers of children that often associated with um, uh, families that had come from those areas. There were quite a lot of them. And all his brothers were off at war as well. But he was uh, observant. And I have no doubt that but for his faith, I wouldn't be here. Now, I'm too grounded to talk about miracles. I don't <laughs> believe there were any miracles in the Chinda campaign. But what I will say is this, and I'm not just talking about Jewish faith. The soldiers that had faith during captivity, somehow, when they had nothing left, managed to find that extra bit of strength to carry them through. He talks about a march between two prison camps over two weeks, and he talks about praying as they marched and finding some strength from that. And every day in the camp, he was issued with a small Siddur prayer book. And different to a normal one, because it had prayers in there, for example, prayer before battle, or a prayer for a wounded comrade, or a prayer for a dead comrade. And amongst the memories that I found was uh, a recording of a, a British officer at the Imperial War Museum. And when I found these things, especially when I found my grandfather mentioned, it was like finding treasure. And this officer remembered my grandfather in the camp. He said there was one gentleman of the Jewish faith who was very um, religious and pious, and, and he would pray every day in the camps. And if everybody was being noisy, he'd say, quiet, everyone, there's a man praying. So I think it just gave him the extra reserves because in the camps it's hard to convey the cruelty um people were dying daily from starvation slave labor disease there was cholera there was typhoid um there were beatings there were murders by guards the disease was rampant diseases like beriberi and malaria he had malaria all his life recurring malaria um i say we talk about courage of men in battle but the courage of the men in these circumstances was mind-blowing there's one part in his memoir where they talk about uh, when they were sent out on work parties smuggling in food but getting caught and beaten up for it the food was for the sick in the hospitals and there was a cholera breakout and they separated off those men into a sort of private room uh, so they couldn't infect anybody else and one man who didn't have cholera volunteered to look after them now you know that if you're going into a room with people with cholera you're not coming out 
and you're going to die in nasty circumstances. And someone was willing to do that. So I think it was just that the commitment they had to each other. And for some of them, I just think that extra something inside that came from a belief, do you think, made the difference? I'd love to hear that. I don't know if you want to answer this, but did your grandfather have resentment for Japanese after this? Yes. Look, I don't know whether that was the entire Japanese people. I don't think he was a hateful person. I don't think he carried around a lot of hate with him. But for the guards, as a prisoner of war, there was no forgiveness in him or, or indeed in me. Now, I don't think he held hatred for those that he fought. Because when we were children, you know, my brothers and I would do what boys do and chase each other around with toy guns and things like that and he was at a house once and I remember him saying um, you know it's a very sad thing to to shoot a man and then I remember him shaking his head as if he was trying to expel a memory I think taking life was something that affected him for the rest of his days so no as a soldier I don't think he had a, a resentment for those he fought but for those that were the guards people that for example bayoneted a man to death for not keeping up on a march yes he hated them yeah Because, I mean, I do know that as opposed to the Nazis and the Italians, the Japanese, it was really like the whole nation was behind it. They they sort of inculcated this idea that like everyone is a soldier and that this is for the empire. And it was like it really came from the top down to a point where there were soldiers who kept on in thinking that the war was going on 30 years later. They were in the forest, right? Yeah, it was it was a cult of emperor worship. Right. And there really was a sort of top-down mm-hmm. mentality and actually when he was marched out of Rangoon jail at the very end on his way to uh, they were destined to go over to the Sitang bridge where there were about 30,000 diehard Japanese soldiers who were dug in for a last stand and that would have been game over for them if they would have ended up there but when they were walking on that road they went past a hole dug in the road and there was a half-naked Japanese soldier in there holding a bomb he might have been half starved. He might have been desperate. He might have known that the end was near. He was waiting for enemy vehicles to come over him so they could blow him and themselves up. But he was in no mood to surrender. Right. Yeah, it's, it's very intense. So we're sitting with Daniel Burke, attorney and author of Captured Behind Japanese Lines with Wingate's Shinditz, Burma, 1942-1945, a book inspired by the incredible heroism of his grandfather, Frank Berkovich, who fought in the Shinditz during World War II. And then the book is out on Amazon. Add to that, if uh, anyone buys this book, my grandfather suffered from what I think we now know is post-traumatic stress disorder. Sleep didn't come easily to him. He had nightmares. During his time as a prisoner of war, they were scared to wake up. I think after the war, he was scared to go to sleep. There was no help whatsoever after the war. When I thought about why he didn't talk about it, I actually don't think he knew how. I don't think it's that he didn't want to. I don't think he knew how. And how could anybody understand if they're not being through it? So he suffered. Uh, I gave you the example earlier of the dripping tap. Today, there are organisations which help soldiers of more recent conflicts um, to deal with mental and and physical injuries. Actually, all of the royalties from this book are being donated to a charity called Veterans in Action, which is a wonderful charity which helps soldiers with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or combat stress. And what they do is wonderful. They build Land Rovers together and then they go on missions together. And they do good things. And because they're together with other people who understand and with some professionals as well, it truly makes a difference and it wow. saves lives. So uh, if you buy the book, you're helping a wonderful charity. Amazing.
Switching gears here slightly, what's the experience been like to be a member of the WJC Jewish Diplomatic Corps? WJC Diplomatic Corps is wonderful. There's a group of about 300 of us with a flagship program for the World Jewish Congress, and we carry out diplomatic missions to address matters which are important for Jews. We represent about 150 countries. Um, we have a mix of people, attorneys, to use your Americanism, uh, and uh, historians, uh, academics. We've got uh, business people, we've got people from such a wonderful range of backgrounds. We're very well networked, we work closely together, and uh, as I say, address matters that are important to Jewish communities, Holocaust remembrance, tackling anti-Semitism, tackling BDS, um, promoting Jewish culture. It's a fabulous organisation. When did you get involved? I think it was 2017, um, June 17, and travelled around carrying out all sorts of jobs. Uh, we make representations to the United Nations. We've uh, spoken, for example, to the German Secretary of State to challenge Germany's position in supporting a gender item seven at the United Nations, which is the standing agenda item under which Israel only can be criticised. Um, I've spoken in Russia about a piece of German law called the Network Enforcement Act or the Next DG law, which is a piece of law designed to reduce online hatred. We've encouraged countries and organisations to adopt the IHRA definition on anti-Semitism. And I say there's a lot of us, we work together, matters that are important to local communities. That can involve challenging politicians, biased journalists, and working with our local affiliates in each country. That's incredible. Yeah, we wanted to switch gears, uh, obviously ask you about that, but also we want to talk a little bit about Corbyn. He obviously lost the election. The negative impact of his movement was made. And when he was running and when that was going on, many British Jews were saying if he won, they would have left. So what has the atmosphere been like for British Jews in the last year? He um, denied and will continue to deny being an anti-Semite, but anybody who recognises anti-Semite would accept that he is. The vast majority of Jews believed he was. But what was interesting is we were continually told we're wrong and he isn't. And I found it astonishing that Jews weren't allowed almost to define what is anti-Semitic and what isn't. We were supposed to be told. He created a deeply unpleasant atmosphere and we continue to suffer from that. But there was a period where for Jewish people in Britain, it really was scary. We had feelings that, for example, the Community Security Trust, uh, which defends Jewish communal buildings and events, would lose funding, that Jewish schools would lose funding. Not because they're Jewish schools, they'd be told, look, we want you to disassociate yourselves from Israel. And this is just what I was expecting to happen. Um, things that they couldn't do. There would be increasing attacks on Israel, support for boycotts. And you simply cannot separate the two. In my view, anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. If you are against the existence of a Jewish state, you're anti-Semitic. If you're against, for example, all religious states and you want to include Iran, Saudi Arabia, the Vatican, fine, we can have that conversation. But when you focus only on Israel. It was frankly an obsession with it. At the Labour Party conference, they were waving Palestinian flags. Now, Labour is the party of the working man. And one of my grandfathers for years was a big Labour supporter. But working people in Britain didn't seem too concerned about Palestine, Cuba, or whatever else Corbyn wished to support. He lost focus on what is important to working people. You know, jobs, the economy, education, housing. And he was truly obsessed with Israel and his followers became obsessed with Israel. Um, and many of these people, they could not point to Israel on a map. And they claim to be pro-Palestinian. They're not. <laughs> but let me tell you something, though. I'm pro-Palestinian. I want Palestinian people to have a good life. 
I want Palestinian people to have a good leadership. I want them to have a non-corrupt leadership. I want them to have jobs. I want them to have success. I want them to have education. I want them to have something to live for. And I've been to areas like Ramallah many years ago to Gaza. These people haven't been there. They can't tell you anything about Palestinian culture, about Palestinian music, about Palestinian education. They're not pro-Palestinian. They simply hate Israel and by extension Jews. I think it's got better. He was beaten so soundly. The Labour Party is making uh, some efforts to expel people who are engaged in anti-Semitic conduct. Um, you know, Twitter and similar platforms are utter cesspits and a lot of his supporters are quite vocal on there. However, good riddance. I'd like to say things are getting better. During the last uh, conflict, during Guardians of the Wall, a convoy of men drove through a Jewish area in London calling for people to kill Jews and rape our daughters. And there have been, you know, numerous anti-Israel protests. And look, it's sad, but hopefully uh, Corbyn will be consigned to the dustbin of anti-Semitic history and things will begin to improve with time. I think those guys were arrested. Correct. They were arrested and charged. Right. Those things that you listed about Palestinian society and, and that you can be pro-Palestinian without saying that it has to come at the expense of Israel. Absolutely. And I think most yeah. Jewish people would agree with that. I, I believe fundamentally in a Jewish state, there were a group of people called Palestinians, who have been betrayed repeatedly by corrupt leaderships, by violent leaderships. And, you know, sadly, peace hasn't been given a chance. If Gaza, uh, under a different leadership, it could have been the Dubai of the area. And um, uh, with investment, with a strong leadership uh, who, who actually believed in their people, we could have had a peaceful state alongside Israel. Sadly, that, that's not happened. So... Wrapping up here, we want to discuss a frequent topic on the Two Tall Jew show, anti-Semitism. The word anti-Semitism. So for anyone familiar with the term, is obviously aware of the words anti-Jewish intention. What is your opinion on changing the term away from anti-Semitism and towards something less anti-Semitic, such as Judeophobia or anti-Jewish racism? So I tend to use the terminology of an anti-Jewish racist. Mm-hmm. or Jew hatred. Because, look, I used to think that anti-Semitism was racism, but anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish racism, doesn't seem to work in the same way as other forms of racism. Typically, a racist will consider another race to be yeah. subhuman or, or lower than them somehow. With anti-Semitism, it seems to work on a, a different premise, that Jews are in control, Jews are all-powerful, that Jews consider themselves superior. is based on superstition. And... I think that's why the IHRA definition is so important. It's, it's difficult to understand. There are areas of America, there are areas of Britain where there are no Jewish people and, and one could live one's whole life without meeting a Jew. And therefore, it may be a little bit difficult for them to understand why uh, accusations of Israeli soldiers killing false accusations of Israeli soldiers killing children, um, which we would immediately recognise as a blood libel, is in fact anti-Semitic, why allegations of financial control, you know, is in fact anti-Jewish racism. So um, I think that's why IHRA is so important, but the term anti-Semitism doesn't mean enough to enough people. Anti-Jewish racism, well, we ought to know racism is wrong, and if someone is against Jewish people, they are a racist. I think we tend to agree. Most of the people on this show have answered something along those lines. And then you see it, especially in online discourse, when you get the, I can't be anti-Semitic because I'm a Semite, or you're not a Semite, so what are you talking about? Like and some... they all have a, a Jewish best friend as well, which I, I, yeah. <laughs> struggle, I, I struggle to believe because there's not that many of us to go around. And also nobody is a language group. So they're like a, sem- yeah. a Semitic is a language group. 
And well, it, uh, sensibly, or, I think if, if one is using the term anti-Semitism, <laughs> drop the hyphen and lower right, the hyphen. Lower yes, yeah. which I'm shocked anytime I see a major Jewish organization still writing it with a hyphen and a capital S. Yes. It makes a big yeah. difference and it might be like semantics and it's like, oh, just get over it. It's just a way, it's just a word. Stop going crazy about a word. It's like, no, but it, it's, it's a big deal for us because, because we, have, we all have trauma. Like, that's what it is. Like, as of this recording this week, we had uh, the school in Texas, the superintendent say that we need a book yeah. posing to you on the Holocaust. And then we're all like, what are, you, what are you talking? And it's like, and then we're the only ones that get mad because we know what this means. We know what it means when this is minimized. It's one step away from denial. And denial means that, it can happen again. Which is why it's incumbent upon us to, you know, be yeah, louder. Exactly. Well, Daniel, any, any questions for us? Any last words? No, other than to say, keep up your wonderful work. It really is important to keep fighting the good fight. And thank you for helping me share this story. It's yeah. been a pleasure having you on. And we, we genuinely love to have you on again. We, we really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much. I would love to do so. I'll get my wife on here as well. She can tell you some of her army stories and life as a Jew in Finland, maybe. So... Thank you very much and keep up the great work with your podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. Be in touch. Yeah. Thank you, Isaac and Mayor. Bye. Bye.